Today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. Some of the most effectual and fervent prayer is that of a dialogue. And what I mean by that is when you pray and you listen, you just wait and let God speak. Just be silent, be quiet, be still, and know that I am God, Psalm 46, 10. Okay, Lord. And now wait on Him and let Him speak chiefly through His Word to you. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of Job. God is not mad at you. When you experience hardship, Satan often will come in and take that opportunity to feed you lies about God. He'll do his best to convince you that you did something wrong and now you're being punished. But as Pastor J.D. reminds us in today's message, God allows hardships as opportunities for you to be more fully reliant on Him. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now, here's Pastor J.D. in the book of Job, chapter 31, with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. When things were going good, I mean, even your prayer life is like, Lord, bless me, bless them, bless this, you know. Amen. But boy, let adversity strike. Oh my, oh God, you know, you're on your face. Creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is, you know. I mean, you're pouring your heart out to God. Your prayer life is just taking on a whole new complexion. I say this in a sanctified way, but it's almost like God's in heaven going, okay, now I got your attention, don't I? That's what it took. I had to allow adversity to strike. So now you're looking to me. See, when things were going just smashingly, is that a word used anymore? We need to bring that word back. That's smashing. <laughs> I think it has a negative context. It's, it's like when my, my, I know I'm digressing, just indulge me. My son uh, comes home a couple years ago, and I, and I hear him starting to use the word, wow, that's sick. I'm like, somebody's sick? So I'm like, whoa, who's sick? Because sick is is sick. Sick is bad. He goes, no, sick is good. I'm like, man, Jesus is coming back. Because, you know, (laughs) good is evil, evil is good. You know Jesus is coming back when sick is good. Because back in my day and back in your day, sick was not good. Okay, I feel better now. Where were we? We were in the middle of a Bible study here somewhere. But verse 25 Actually, verse 26, if I have observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness. In other words, I've I've not been given over to idolatry, which was the practice of the day, worshiping the sun, worshiping the moon. So that my heart had been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand. This also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment, for I would have denied God who is above. Important uh, detail right there. Not only will he not curse God, neither will he deny God. He's Remember, in his despair, and again, I love what Oswald Chambers says, God will never fault a man for despair. He's not, God does not hold his despair against him. 
And in and through it all, and as we're going to see at the end of the book, in all of this, Job did not curse God, neither did he deny God. Verse 29, if I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me, this is interesting. I I was asked to and did the invocation for the House of Representatives at the state capitol last Friday, and I had three minutes. (laughs) That was a trial, by the way. I only had three minutes. So, but I could share and then, you know, uh, open the uh, session in prayer. Really an honor. Yeah. And so uh, Representative Gene Ward had, who's been coming, uh, he and his wife, and had uh, invited me to do so. I'm, I'm praying, I'm seeking God. God, what what are you going to, what do you want me, <laughs> what do you want me to say? I've got three minutes to say it and pray it. So what do you want me to say? And he really impressed very uh, powerfully upon my heart to pray for them for wisdom, specifically the wisdom that God supernaturally gave to Solomon. So I went back, I think it's uh, 1st Samuel, or no, uh, 1st Kings 3, and I read the account, one of my favorite accounts in all the scripture. I know I said about all the accounts in all the scripture, but one of my, truly one of my favorite, because it's the account of when God appears to Solomon and says, what, what shall I give you? Anything you want. And Solomon, in his 20s, by the way, and his father was King David. Those are some pretty big shoes to fill, right? So he's now king on the throne, and he's going, God, I don't have a clue what to do. I don't know how to walk this way, go up to the throne. I don't know how to walk down from the th- I don't know. I don't know what to do. I need wisdom. And what was really striking to me was that God said very specifically, because you did not ask for riches, and because you did not ask for the destruction or death of your enemies, <laughs> I would ask for that. Come on, don't look at me all spiritual like that. So I can have anything I want, God? All right. Just, just a moment. right? Come on. But because you didn't ask for the demise or the destruction or the death of your enemies, and because you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you riches and wisdom. And I went on, and I did this. I think you would have been very proud of me because I did this in three minutes. I went on to share very briefly, because it had to be, about Solomon's first display of this supernatural wisdom. You remember the account? Two prostitutes are brought before him. And one prostitute, and so I'm sharing this, and it was really interesting, because I was kind of watching for the body language there with all the you know, state representatives, and and uh, you could tell, you know, there's, there's some Christians there, and I just am so grateful for them, and I think you know what I'm talking about, but you could also tell who the non-Christians were. So I said, so 
So they bring this, this case before Solomon with two prostitutes. And all, and all of a sudden I, I kind of had their attention when I said prostitutes, because that's what they were. And they both had a son, gave birth to a son, close in proximity one to the other. And they were both living in the same dwelling. And in the night, on this one particular night, one prostitute rolls over her infant son and kills him, realizes it, takes her dead son to the other prostitute and switches out the son, gives her the dead son and takes the, the alive son back and then claims that, that no, yours, yours died, not mine. Mine's, mine's still living. So these two prostitutes are brought to, to Solomon and now Solomon's got to judge and rule, make a ruling on who's telling the truth. So what does he do? He says, bring me a sword. Cut the baby in half. Give one half to the one, one half to the other. To which the real mother, in horror, responds, no, 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 no. Give the, give the boy to her. Solomon goes, that's the mother right there. And you know what's interesting is the, the other prostitute said, fine, cut the baby in half. Oh. <laughs> so then I say, <laughs> there, <laughs> They, they weren't texting anymore. Because <laughs> they, they were actually, until I got to that part, I guess. I don't know why. I love it when God does that. But I, I said, you too have been uniquely positioned as Solomon. And, and you need, where do you think he got that wisdom? That wisdom came from God. That's supernatural wisdom. And that's the wisdom I want to pray for you. Because you are going to be making judgment calls and decisions in cases where you need God's supernatural wisdom. And anyway, I don't know how I got off on that, except that Solomon didn't ask for the destruction of his enemies. And that's what Job's saying here. I never, I never, I never did that. I never did that. Or lifted myself up when evil found him. Indeed, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. If the men, verse 31, of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been satisfied with his meat? But no sojourner had to lodge in the street. For I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families so that I kept silence and did not go out of the door. Oh, verse 35, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. And by the way, put that just in your pocket for just a moment. I want to come back to that. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor, notice it's capitalized, had written a book. Oh, he did. <laughs> Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. You know what Job's doing here? He's actually calling upon an ancient defense in the sense that he's calling down God's judgment upon himself. In other words, if, if I had looked lustfully at a, at a woman 
or coveted my neighbor's wife or deprived the widow. And the list goes on and on and on throughout the chapter. If, if I have done those things, then I will call a curse down from God on myself. He's maintaining his innocence by what's known as an oath of clearance. This is what they would do when innocent. And here's why they would do it. The idea is that if one were truly guilty, they wouldn't do this. And, and, and actually this has application in our day. You know, may God strike me dead. <laughs> Don't joke like that anyway, right? But if, if I'm guilty of this, you know, and I find myself even uh, sometimes saying, as God is my witness. You know, I, I've been not doing that as much lately. I need to not do that at all, because what I'm basically saying is, God, you, <laughs> you just strike me with a lightning bolt if I'm, you know, you know, as God is my witness. You know, he's calling a curse down on himself. And if you're really guilty, you don't do that. If you're innocent, you know that a curse won't come down because you're not guilty. And that's, that's why you would pronounce this oath of clearance. He is truly not guilty of the crimes and the sins that he's accused of committing. Adam Clark said it this way. Job is so conscious of his own innocence that he is willing it should be put to the utmost proof. And if found guilty, that he may be exposed to the most distressing and humiliating punishment, even to that of being deprived of his goods, bereaved of his children, his wife made a slave, and subjected to all indignities in that state. You know, it was, uh, I wish we had more time. Maybe we'll talk about it more uh, in the uh, weeks uh, ahead before we complete the book of Job. But have you ever thought about why it is that uh, Satan didn't take Job's wife's life? Now think about that. Well, now I know what you're thinking because she's the one that said curse God and die. So uh, he wanted her to be an influence on, on Job. But no, think about this. He could have. He had permission from God to. But he didn't. Again, maybe we'll, we'll talk about that some other time. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan of this chapter says, This whole chapter is occupied with Job's solemn oath of innocence. It was his final and explicit answer to the line of argument adopted by his three friends. At this point then, we have reached the end of Job's expressions of pain. The end is silence. And then listen to this. This is, this is good. That, the end of silence. Job's done now. The end of Job's words. That is God's opportunity for speech. He often waits until we have said everything. <laughs> and then in the silence prepared for such speech, he answers. Wow. Have you ever thought about it like that? You know, we want God to speak to us. Well, maybe it's not that God won't, it's that God can't. And the reason why God can't is because we're not done talking yet. I think about prayer. You know, prayer, nothing wrong with prayer being a monologue, 
But I think some of the most effectual and fervent prayer is that of a dialogue. And what I mean by that is when you pray and you listen, you just wait and let God speak. Just be silent, be quiet, be still, and know that I am God, Psalm 46, 10. Okay, Lord. And now wait on him and let him speak chiefly through his word to you. You know that it's it's a great illustration of a phone. I used to do it like this back in the day. Now it's a cell phone. So it's like this. <laughs> but the microphone is prayer and the speaker uh, on the ear is God's word. So you're you're talking to the Lord in prayer and he's responding and speaking to you through his word. And that's primarily how God speaks. But sometimes God's waiting for us to stop so he can start. Waiting for us to stop talking so he can start <laughs> start talking. He doesn't talk over us. You ever notice that? He doesn't talk over us. And then when he does talk, it's usually in that still small voice, that still refining voice, as another translation sort of renders it. So in high school, I had a biology teacher, Mr. Bowman. In fact, I had an opportunity to share that he was the object of uh, many of my sermon illustrations uh, at one of my uh, class reunions. I think it was our 20-year 20, 20 reunion or 25-year reunion. Mr. Bowman, really cool guy, really intelligent guy. He was biology, algebra, uh, calculus. I didn't do calculus. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I actually enjoyed algebra. But he, he would always talk in a really quiet, you know, voice. It was almost like, you know, a monotone vo- voice where he, that he just, he never talked any louder than that. And just always just real quiet and very, you know, calm. And I'll never forget the very first time I, I had him, uh, you know, my, a class with him. I yelled <laughs> at him. I said, hey, speak up. I can't hear you. That was a mistake. But after I got back from the principal's office, <laughs> he explained to me <laughs> that that's how I speak. That's how I talk. And if you want to hear me speak and you want to listen to me talk, then you have to be quiet. I'm not going to talk louder. You have to be quiet. I'm going to leave it at that because I'm getting convicted again all these years later. <laughs> but that's how it is with the Lord sometimes. We need to turn down the volume on our lives so we can hear him speak in that still small voice into our, our lives. You know where Job says, uh, here is my mark? This is how I want to end the, the Bible study. It's in verse 35 of chapter 31. He says, here is my mark. Okay. It carries with it the idea of here is my signature or here is my ta. T-A-W. Now one commentator noted it this way. Some versions translate this, here is my signature or ta, since ta, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, could be used like our letter X to denote a person's mark or signature, yet Even more interesting is the fact that in the ancient Hebrew script used by the author of Job, this letter Ta was a cross-shaped 
mark in the shape of a cross. In a sense, therefore, what Job was saying is, here is my cross. Now, for those of you who have been with us on Thursday nights for the Old Testament, you are keenly aware of the typology, especially when it comes to the cross. Example, the high priest and the wave offering, uh, north, south, east, west, shape of a cross. In the Exodus in, in Egypt, they were to take the blood of a lamb, put it on the doorpost, top, bottom, in the basin, left, right, shape of a cross, angel of death, pass over because of the cross from the blood. When the, uh, in Numbers 22, when the Israelites were camped, and Balak was threatened by the numbers increasing of the Israelites. And so he hires Balaam and to pronounce a curse on him. And he takes him up to this higher vantage point because any, anything that came out of his mouth was not a curse, but a blessing and a beautiful and magnificent blessing at that. And so Balak, so frustrated, takes him up to this high mountain, says, now pronounce a curse on him. And he's beholding the numbers of the Israelites camp. And we have those numbers in, would you believe it, the book of Numbers, which is a book about numbers. And it's probably one of the most fascinating books in all of the Bible. Yet it gets a lot of bad press about being a, yeah, we're going to be in the book of Numbers. That's all right. No, thank you. Oh my, how Amazing. So in the book of Numbers, I think it's chapter 6. So we're given the numbers of the Israelites camp to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, the tabernacle right smack in the middle. And it's interesting, the detail, because the numbers to the east and the west are less than the number numbers to the south and about the same as the numbers to the north. But if you take those numbers and you, you divide the camps, 12 tribes into four camps, three each, to the east of the west, north to the south, based on those numbers, the south being the largest numbers, you have a shape of a cross. Generations before they had even invented the crucifixion. And that's why, and by the way, talking about Romans 8, 1, that's why he could not for the life of him, though being paid an extraordinary amount of money, pronounce a curse on them because of the cross. He was beholding the Israelites camped in the shape of a cross. And just like that angel of death would pass over the house with the blood in the shape of a cross, so too would that curse not fall upon or be able to be pronounced upon the Israelites in the shape of a cross. And that's why a blessing came out instead. There is therefore now no curse, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that's why they couldn't be cursed. And that's what Job is saying. Here is my cross. Generations before, many generations before, the Romans would even come up with crucifixion. Thanks for listening to In Spirit and Truth. We hope Pastor J.D. Farag's message from the book of Job has blessed you and given you hope in the midst of your own life struggles. If you'd like to hear additional teachings from Pastor J.D., simply visit our website at inspiritandtruthradio.com and click on Listen at the top of the page. There you'll find a link to subscribe to our podcast or you can download messages to share with your family and friends. Are you a part of a church family? The Bible urges us to find fellowship with other believers, not only for purposes of community, but also for the health of your own personal spiritual walk. 
You too can contribute valuable and unique gifts to the body of Christ, giving support in the ways God has designed you to. If you're in the Kaneohe area, we'd be thrilled to welcome you to our fellowship here at Calvary Chapel Kaneohe. Our weekly services are on Sundays at 8.30 and 10.45 a.m. and Thursdays at 7 p.m. We focus on studying God's Word and worshiping our Creator, all while getting to know each other better through Christ's love. Location information and directions can be found by going to InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com and clicking on Calvary Chapel Kaneohe at the bottom of the page. We're excited to share this time with you in person, and we're so glad you spent time with us here today on In Spirit and Truth. May God bless you as you continue to study His Word and follow His path for your life. Pastor J.D. will have more to share from the book of Job when you tune in next time, right here on In Spirit and Truth. <laughs> 